0: listening to the hunter conservationist podcast
1: so last time when we spoke on the phone that was kind of like late november or whatever you guys were getting ready to kind of do some late season hunts so how'd that how'd that go How'd, how'd they turn out
2: I just like Leland? to point out that grin that Leland has on his face, so I think he had our lead off. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: I mean, I'm just really excited about it. I mean, who who doesn't like a good hunting story? Well, I mean, I was uh, let's see, late I think late November. Yeah, I was just planning on getting out for that cow elk hunt over in Northeast Oregon, and um, and I got out and started off a little slow, had some issues with the rifle, I'd been, I messed around this year and put a new stock on my rifle and it has been giving me a bit of trouble, but I got that all figured out, got it, finally got it, sighted in, so it was shooting the way I wanted, and then um, got out in the field, my first day I saw zero animals, which was a little disturbing, Um, you know, because I was out there really hoping to put some meat on the table, but um, second day, I went out and this is in a high, high prairie bunch grass. So it's just all bunch grass and um, no cover anywhere. I was on animals about eight o'clock in the morning until 3.30 or so in the afternoon, I was stalking a herd of elk um, and it was pretty sweet just hanging out, watching them work and just trying to slowly work my way in close to them. and I was by myself and just uh, sat on a rifle for three and a half hours until about 3.45. They finally stood up in a spot where I had a shot, and I took a cow at 270 yards. She made it probably 30 yards or so um, after being hit by the first bullet. Ended up putting two more into her just to try to anchor her in place because I was by myself and didn't want to be chasing after. Her. And then was in the field till 1130 or so at night processing and, and packing the first set of quarters out. Um, I went back the next morning and got the rest with some, some other folks who lent me a hand and it was, it was an experience is what it was. It was a lot of fun, but man, I'll tell you what, I might wait for a couple of friends next time <laughs> because that <laughs> steep hill I was on whooped me pretty bad
1: (laughs) they're uh even an elk right like it's pretty darn big when you walk up to it laying on the ground you're kind of yeah by yourself you're like what did i just do
0: (laughs) yeah and with nothing to tie off to i think was the biggest problem you know if there'd been a tree or a shrub or anything i could have tied her off to to keep her from sliding but she just kept rolling further and further down that hill every time i i kind of worked on a leg or anything. She just kept sliding. So it was, a. and did you have to go back
1: up with the loads or was, Uh, or was sliding in the right direction?
0: She was sliding in the right direction, but all my gear was up above me. So I was, you know, get, I'd get a quarter off and then I'd get, you know, there was a small rock outcropping. So I was trying to get the quarters up to that and leave like set them up on that rock outcropping before I finally packed everything down low. Um, for the overnight. So it's a
1: little bit of back and forth. Awesome. So yeah, that, that's yeah. that's a nice feeling to have that much food in your freezer. You probably. Yeah, brand new freezer with your too. I mean,
0: yeah. Hey, <laughs> like, Mer Merry Christmas. Here's an elk and go get a freezer. So you got
1: <laughs> Right on, right on. So you kind of said like, you know, your first day it was kind of like zero animals. Is, did, do you find maybe this is something I've talked about before, like with new hunters, it's like I worry about like all like the TV stuff and mm-hmm. it's like people's expectations are like what you see these people pack into 22 minutes. And then the reality is, and it's the same with me, it's like you get out there and it's like, okay, nothing, no tracks, no, nothing next day, the next day, the next day. And it's like, you just kind of keep going. And, and, uh, yeah, it's actually something I'm pretty concerned about, like you know, especially new hunters, um, those first time onset hunters and stuff. Like if that's all, you know, are the movies, your expectations are like, you know, and you go out there and you're like, of course, then they're like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm doing everything wrong. And I'm like, no, no, that's pretty much the real world. It works It works that way for me too, after my whole life. So I don't know. What do you think? Do you, do, are you influenced by that a little bit yeah. going, ah. Uh.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I, I hunt by myself a lot, um, and so I and only in the last few years, because um, my background, you know, was invasive species removal, doing work trying to shoot invasive species, and a lot of that is just kind of on your own out in the field, um, and you're not often working in a, with a big team, and only in the last couple of years have I really gone out on some hunts with um, kind of a crew. And I realized how powerful those other people around you can be, and how good it is to surround yourself with a couple of other folks who are just going to stay positive and keep you motivated to keep going. Because um, it's really easy to get kind of sucked down into that, oh, I'm doing everything wrong. I'm not, you know, I'm not finding stuff. I just don't know what I'm doing. I should just stop. I should quit. And even if you're out by yourself for the day, just having someone you can come back and kind of go through stuff at night um, and, and kind of troubleshoot a little bit and, and just talk it through helps a, a ton. And just so any yeah. new hunter, you're gonna, just thinking about that. It's like, man, it doesn't have to be a lot of people, um, but just finding one other person who, even if you're not hunting together, you know, when you get out of the field, you can give them a call and, and kind of troubleshoot a little bit and stay motivated um, is really important.
1: No, it's cool. That's, that's good. Good advice. Yeah. And uh, yeah, real world usually takes longer than 22 minutes to pull all this stuff together. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and in your case, probably like, like six or seven hours in the dark to get it out too. So get on. Yeah, you. It was a, it
0: was, yeah, it was a long time in the dark and it's, you know, I've shot a lot of animals over the years mean, you know, I've shot, I've been pretty lucky in my life. I'll, I'll say that. But it's a different experience when you're wrestling around a big animal like that and it's late and it's dark and it's in an area where you maybe don't know it very well. And you got to just kind of take the time to enjoy that experience of being out there by yourself and look up at the stars and stop for a second and say, you know, i don't have to fight this the whole way. I can actually enjoy part of the experience here i mean there's a lot of work left to do but you don't have to get too crazy with
1: it now throw into that our situation in the rocky mountains of southern british columbia and you're you know from that moment the clock's ticking till a grizzly bear shows up and it and it's just like <laughs> there's no time to enjoy anything let's just get this and get out of here the last white-tailed deer my wife got in the late season we figured there was uh six grizzly bears within a two kilometer radius where we're hunting and when we got up to her down deer it was right as you know like last light and i was kind of like the rodeo like the uh calf roping thing and it was just like cut cut clean in half in a pack on okay goodbye (laughs) let's get out of here so yeah. Uh,
0: An- another good advocate for having some friends with you when you're out there,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. cuts, cuts your odds down. Like that yeah, I was, you're, you're not going to be the first one to be mauled.
0: I was, I was hunting in the same area and he said that, um, they, they came up where I'd parked my truck a couple of days before and, uh, and right where I was in my truck right around it. He said that there was just grizzly bear tracks everywhere. Grizzly bear tracks following my tracks just all over, like yeah, that, that's a whole nother, another level man. I got that, uh, a friend of mine who works out cause the piece of property I was hunting was a nature conservancy property. They allow hunters to help manage those herds. They've got some issues with overgrazing. Um, but he sent me some trail cam footage from, I think two or three weeks before of the herd of elk just up the hill always, you know, maybe within a mile getting run around by, uh at least one pair of wolves there's probably more that there's only two on the on the camera it's just i mean part of it's knowing you're not the top predator out there there's some value in that too to be reminded every once in a while
2: let you know I'm you're so alive
1: very... <laughs> <laughs> so chris how'd your uh your late season hunting go on
2: you know, it's, uh, after that, uh, 14 day archery elk hunt, that was kind of a lifetime hunt in, in, uh, September, um, everything kind of mellowed out. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't get to go down South and chase coos deer, um, as I had intended to, but, uh, got out a couple of days, uh, with, with, uh, both my daughters and, um, actually got a javelina first javelina I've ever killed with a, well, ever killed. And I killed oh, one yeah. with a bow. And so, yeah, and I mean, as far as the year stacked up, it wasn't bad. Got several days in the field, saw bucks every day, and uh, killed a bull earlier in the in the fall, and uh, got a javelina. And I can't complain. I can't complain. But wow. I think it's the same, the same, um, the same experience. You know, you 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 know what's in your head. You know what you know from your own experiences and from what you've read and what you've seen on the computer, on the television. And I think Leland hit it, hit the nail on the head. Sometimes you have to not sweat. You know, oh, I'm not working. I'm wasting my time. I shouldn't be out here. You know, and I'm not going to see anything. Or maybe I should move. Or um, sometimes you just got to stop, smell the roses, and and enjoy the fact that you're out there doing it, and and realize that the process you're going through is is informing that which you are and which we all are in our heritage as hunters and build that experience for yourself you know you don't have to live up to anybody else's experience and and that was the cool thing about this hunting season for me is with my first archery elk um killed a lot of elk with rifle but um to to hunt them in the rut and and experience that man it beat me down and pulled me up by my my coat t- tails you know and and drug me around a bit it felt like and then in the end to to persevere and and realize that what we learned there and the experiences we had with all those different bulls and waiting for them to finally go into rut um man i i added to to my new world view of what hunting is for me and I think I'm a little more mellow about it than I used to be. So, all the more reason I need to get up there and hunt where there are bears, so I can recreate that whole thing with that fear of uh, knowing your place <laughs> in, in the environment. <laughs> a, little,
1: a little bit of a little bit of an intensity, adrenaline, and all that, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 It's uh, I don't know. It it is kind of cool that they're out there on the landscape, but at, at sometimes it's it's pretty overwhelming. Oh, I um, can only imagine. Pretty. It's pretty it's pretty freaky. And, um, you know, even when Curtis was very young and first starting to hunt, like it really bothered me um, that I was out there by myself with my young son because like but wasn't with a group of people and that really limited like going to places. I'm just like, no, I can't, I can't be in here and have something down and have something like that go sideways. Um, there's, there's too much at stake. So it was like, it was very conservative, you know, hunting when he was little because of that. So. um, Well, and, and even
0: too, it's like, you know, it's a taking time bomb. If you spend enough time out there in those places, you're going to have run-ins with them. And so it's like, when's that going to (laughs) happen? Yeah, and how many times is that going to happen?
1: Hopefully, when I'm grown and I got my old life, and it's my old man who's lived a good life and got lots of animals. And hey, Dad, that was your time. Oh <laughs> <laughs> um, man! Hey, everybody, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, Mark Hall here, your host.
2: Yeah, and Curtis
0: Hall, the co-host
1: and um we're really excited about this episode uh we're joined by um chris Parrish. um chris is the uh, director of <coughs> global conservation for the peregrine fund and you're calling in from uh new mexico right now
2: yeah i'm down here doing uh, golden eagle surveys for most of the month so uh away Welcome. from home but uh yeah in a pretty cool place and doing eagle surveys and yeah it's uh one one part of my job for a, a couple of weeks a year
1: nice nice to get away and uh also joined by uh leland brown uh leland's uh, non-led hunting education coordinator at the oregon zoo yep
0: yeah in sure oregon sure in oregon in portland oregon yeah so but i travel all over the state working with the hunting community and just sharing information and I gotta, you know, I say this all the time to folks. I never thought I'd work for a zoo in mean, my background's field biology. <laughs> and like I said, invasive species removal and kind of shooting animals to get them off the landscape where they're causing damage. And now I work for a zoo. It's like, how did that happen? Still a little confused <laughs> by it, but you know, I get to hang out and talk, hunting and bullets and have conversations like this pretty consistently. So I'm, I'm not really complaining.
1: No, that's pretty cool. I mean, right that's right a on, great. Yeah you know, you're probably going to come into contact, I would assume, with, you know, people from different aspects of society that you really have a good chance to have some very interesting conversations with, so.
0: Yeah, the zoo's an interesting little microcosm, right? I mean, you get people, everyone goes to a zoo, right? You get people who hunt, you get people who really dislike hunting, and then you've got, you know, the majority who kind of are somewhat ambivalent about hunting and Often are just looking for a little bit more information. And it's nice to be in that position a lot of time and, and share a little bit of my experience with people um, so they can be a little bit more informed moving forward.
1: I bet. So the the zoo is like, we received this uh shipment of this 370 um Roosevelt elk um that'll go into the paddock you know hopefully breed with the cows and does anybody know where Leland is (laughs) (laughs) put let's put security on him for yeah yeah, you gotta keep an eye on
0: me uh they don't have elk at the at the Portland Oregon Zoo anymore Uh, they got rid of them before I showed up unfortunately
1: Uh, okay okay sneaky like that <laughs> cool. Now, y- you guys um, are co-founders of the North American non led Partnership. Yep. is that true? That is. I got the wrong. wrong no, p- you got in, it. Michelle, if you're not. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. got the right ones. <laughs> we got the right ones. Good. Um, so, w- why did you form this partnership? What? What? Tell us a story. How did you get here? What was the driving? Motivation.
2: Chris. You kick it off, Lee. Lee? All right. Uh, yeah. Either yeah, way. Okay. <laughs> um, I came into this as a, well. I, I guess I think it's important to have a, a little bit of background uh, just so people know who we are. You know, I work for the Peregrine Fund, a conservation organization. Leland works for the Oregon Zoo. So automatically, people have their predisposed ideas about what that means, you know, and we're coming at this from conservation. Well, we, I, I think I speak for both of us and, and surely for myself. I, I became a biologist, a wildlife biologist because of my interest and my passion for hunting and fishing. And um, I began working for Arizona Game and Fish in uh, the uh, mid-90s and would work on anything I could get my hands on. After I realized that the only one big game biologist per region, uh, of which we have six in Arizona... Um, those are pretty coveted jobs, so my my dreams were dashed that I was going to be the big game biologist for the Flagstaff region, which was the mo- one of the most coveted regions, and I began working on, on other programs. And ultimately, it didn't matter what species I worked with. I just uh, was just happy as hell to be uh, employed uh, working with wildlife. That put me in the uh, California condor reintroduction program in northern Arizona in the Grand Canyon region. And... Um, that was of interest to me because I'd grown up with them. I, I grew up um, west of Bakersfield, in California. I know there's also more preconceived notions now flowing through people's heads, but <laughs> but if they know about Bakersfield, they'll know that that's a little little bit different than the quintessential California. Um, but I, I saw the Condors as a kid there, and I I was introduced to wildlife management in probably not the best of ways because it was, I knew about the endangered species and I knew about condors and other species that were endangered and it was kind of a bad taste in the mouth of the locals there. And as I began to study wildlife management in college and then realized that you can make a career of it, I thought, well, hell yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And then I'm smack dab in the middle of condor preservation in the Grand Canyon state nor, um, in uh, Northern Arizona. We began seeing lead exposure, um, in the birds that, that we were monitoring. And it wasn't until, uh, the mid two thousands that I began to see where, what role I would be able to play here as a conservation biologist and as a diehard hunter. And when we started seeing the lead exposure and asking questions and doing studies, um, about you know rates of fragmentation in standard deer hunting rifle ammunition and shooting deer and x-raying them and things like that we were doing those things to answer questions of where in the hell is this lead coming from and um, then fast track forward to i wasn't the only one doing this and doing this type of work leland was doing it in california Um, a couple of other of our co-founders were doing the same thing and we kept saying How are we going to get this information out to a broader audience? You know, this doesn't, the, the fact that we found what we found in condors isn't the significance here. The significance is through our intensive studies of an endangered species where we monitor each individual of a population and therefore can tell you about, you know, whether it was exposed this year or not or what it died of, if it died. That allowed us an an indicator, if you will, of what was happening in the landscape with the relationship between hunting as, as a hunter first, as a biologist, understanding the potential for lead exposure, and then how we spread that message to a greater audience. So we had developed some programs locally and the same thing was going on in California, but we really had always fantasized about how do we take this to a broader audience? Because what we found is indicative of the relationship between hunting and scavengers wherever hunting and scavengers exist. So that kind of led to the impetus for why, why we formed the North American non-led partnership. It's not just about a condor or an Eagle, or it's about the relationship we as hunters have with the ecosystem and, and hopefully practicing that tradition of conservation and bringing that ethic and maintaining that as we're so proud of so many of our forefathers that, that did the same. So that kind of, um, I was all over the place there. But uh, Leland, rein me in, man. Bring bring it home. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's a lot to gather up there, Parrish. <laughs> I know, yeah. It's been a long day. I've been staring at a at a hillside in the spotting scope all day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably faking probably all those thoughts all day, too. Is hard I to saw remember. some oryx today, so that was cool. But another story.
0: Yeah, I mean, really what it comes down to is... Uh, For me, I was working for a nonprofit doing invasive species removal, and they told me, if you want to do this feral pig removal project, you're doing outreach around non-lead ammunition um, as part of that project. I said, okay, that's fine. I want to shoot pigs. Show me the science. Show me what's going on. If I agree with it, I'll work on it. And I started reading the science that was available and said, holy crap, how didn't I know about this? Cause I'm a biologist, I'm a biologist that gets paid to know about ammunition and shoot things and remove them from the landscape. And I had no idea. Um, so pretty quickly went from there to, okay, well, how do I, sh- how do we share this information in a way that actually helps our fellow hunters? Um, as Chris said, understand more about the relationship between hunting and the surrounding ecosystem and our impacts both on the individual species that we're targeting but also the unintended consequences that come from the potential choice of ammunition or choice of material that we're using in our ammunition. Um, and how can we improve that wherever possible? So I did that in California for several years with people are around to be Oh, a couple guys from California, but I'm originally from New Hampshire is this is the live free or die state. Right. You know, I, I have, basically I've spent most of my life going with that like don't tell me what to do show me what i can do and i'll see if i want to do it um, and that's kind of how i operate all the programs that i run as well i'll show you what you can do it's up to you if you want to do it or not but you have to understand all the consequences that come along with all of these different choices and i left california for a couple of years and was working in hawaii because i um wasn't shooting feral pigs much anymore in California and wanted to shoot more stuff. Went to Hawaii, worked out there for some time doing, you know, uh, native ecosystem conservation. Same thing, feral pigs, goats, things like that. But I was out there and still was thinking about non-lead ammunition. Managed to get our whole program there, kind of switched over that we were running, um, get all, using all non-lead, tested a bunch of ammo doing that. And then this job in Oregon came up and it was a new position a new area that we hadn't really done the work before and i'd saw, seen kind of how people had tried to do it in california and how it had happened and i'd seen what chris had been doing in arizona and how successful that had been and kind of the the need for that continued type of effort working in partnership with our community rather than against them um, and that's why i decided to apply for this position in oregon I started here we kind of revamped again like Chris was saying we knew for a long time that we need to get this across the whole landscape because it isn't just one species it isn't just one place it's it's really just spread across the entire landscape where there's hunting and there's scavengers you have these interactions happening and so that was really the impetus for the partnership is now we have kind of a bit more of a spread. How do we actually formalize this a bit more? We'd always been doing this together. You know, We've been talking to each other, figuring out the best ways to communicate, try to share these ideas. Um, but now we just were looking for the, the way to really bring other people on board and show them how we've been doing it and how we can bring other people in. And that's really what the partnership's about is, is how do we combine everyone's efforts and everyone's concepts and ideas around conservation and hunting and how to maintain sustainability in hunting and sustain hunting itself into the future is as critical as any of the rest of it for us. Um, And that's what the partnership's about. It's maintaining all of those pieces together and then making sure as we move forward, hunting remains kind of as the respected leader in conservation as a community that it has been in the past bring that forward
1: into the future yeah that's cool yeah great stories great stories you know stuff that you know people it probably resonates with people the condor story i think you know it's um doesn't matter what you know generation you're from i think you know people know that story and that, that's a cool that's a cool starting point now like now the partnership is like, it's a formal thing. Like, I mean, it's like, there's like an entity, like you've got a, you've got a presence um, and you're you, like, you're building out, you've got, you know, some partners coming on board, you've got some, some organizations helping, you know, kind of in the background with, you know, financial support to do things for your outreach programs and stuff. And, and uh okay, kind of, you kinda know, of so. um, <laughs> Kinda of, sorta. Okay. We're working um, on it. <laughs> yeah. No, okay. So it's it's growing and it's resonating with various groups across the United States. As so we talked a little bit in Canada, not a whole lot of traction here. Um so how 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 do you feel about that? Where you are right now, like with with people that are coming on board, are you are you seeing your vision? Like, are are, are you really thinking like, yes, we're starting to touch continent wide on on this? It's it's getting traction. Do you feel you're there?
0: I don't think we're there, but we're getting there.
1: Okay. Um, yeah. You know, this
0: is going to be a, a long term discussion. It's going to be a long term conversation within the community. But we're seeing a shift in kind of the philosophy. It's getting away from a discussion about non-lead ammo is anti-hunting, which for a long time kind of was how people would respond, mostly due to what happened in California and the approach that some other groups took there and tried to kind of ram things down the throat to a certain extent. Um, but this discussion about kind of best practices and, you know, conservation and ammunition performance is is quite a bit different than that. Uh, And people are really interested in hearing that. They're curious about it. And we're seeing that reflected in the folks that are starting to join the partnership. Um, I mean, we've got what 32 different organizations have joined the partnership since we launched in 2018. And I'd say almost all of those are hunting organizations. That's our focus because this is, a hunter issue it's hunters making choices about their ammunition that's who we're trying to talk to um, and that's who we're asking to join the partnership to have it be a hunter-led effort um, and that's a a really big shift to see these groups saying okay let's have this conversation instead of saying we don't even want to talk about this um, because it puts us at risk uh, and i think that's really important because it in my personal opinion, I think what this does is actually protect the future of hunting in, in a fantastic way, because as long as we have good ammunition that performs well and kills the animals we intend to kill quickly and efficiently and humanely, um, then we can continue to hunt. Um, however, if we lose um, kind of the other side of that where we're having an accidental impact, and you know, try to be really clear about this, is None of this is happening because we intend it to happen. We're not planning on leaving you know, some fragments behind in the gut pile that other species eat. It's an incidental effect of the materials that we're choosing and how they all perform.
1: Uh, but, yeah, or for a big part, it's like that's what was available.
0: Yeah, absolutely, you know? absolutely. Uh, that's just kind of what, what we could get to. Um, that's what manufacturers yeah. knew. It's kind of historic. What we all knew.
2: Yeah, we. Yeah. It's what we all knew. We we did what we did because it's what we've done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of the same thing. And, and until someone tells you about a new product, and the best way for new products to enter into someone's using them is, you know, advertisement and marketing. And you know, when when we first started publishing the results of some of our scientific Uh, inquiries which weren't terribly scientific by the way I mean we asked how many fragments could there possibly be in a gut pile well we went out and shot 34 deer in the first study and quantified how many fragments there are from each different type of bullet from you know 243 up to some of the magnum rounds in in uh, white-tailed deer that we shot within 200 yards and then we x-rayed them and It blew our minds, and we thought, holy crap, look at the the snowstorm effect is what it's called when you're talking about humans in wartime. When that bullet impacts and lead begins stripping away from the front of that bullet, it spreads sometimes up to 15 inches away from the path of the bullets travel. Well, we didn't know anything about that, but it surely helped to inform the biggest question we had on my program which was why are these birds 80% of this population coming into high contact with lead and some of them dying from lead poisoning annually coinciding with the deer season. And so applying the science to that, you don't just make assumptions and say, Oh, it's hunting. So let's, let's stop hunting. However, that's what some groups did. And that was where, where I was very naive as a young scientist, um, on my first, one of my first publications with some pretty high test, um, Uh, co-authors. And I thought, man, my fellow hunters, you know, everybody out there, they're going to love to hear about this because I had no idea. Because what did I do? I looked at the remainder of the bullet, just like we all do. If you're lucky enough to recover one and you see it mushroomed and you say, yep, bullet did its job. Meat's in the freezer. I got proof. There's my bullet. And you know that a bullet loses a little bit of its mass, depending on the bullet construction. Some of them lose 20, 30, 40% of their mass. But again, the animal's dead. It's in the freezer. And here's the remainder of my bullet. But what we never found, because you can't see it unless you're going to x-ray it, or rarely will you see the the fragments. And then we published the paper. And I thought, hot damn, I'm a scientist. And I'm a a responsible hunter sharing this information. And uh, this is going to be great. And then some groups took the results of our science and began beating legislators over the head with it saying we need to, this is another reason we don't need to hunt. And I went, Whoa, wait a second. That's not what this means. This means what it always means. We take new information. We, we absorb it. We reconfigure and we do what's best for wildlife and future generations to be able to enjoy them. And so that was how naive I was. I didn't realize the politics of it all. And so um, Leland mentioned California, and of course, there have been multiple bans over the years, and now there's a statewide ban on the use of lead ammunition for the taking of wildlife. And um, you can imagine how the rest of the hunting community responded, because there was no, for for, for all intensive purposes, there there was really not a lot of lead-in to sharing the understanding that we had come to with some of these studies, like how we quantify rates of fragmentation. And Leland and I and others who work, have worked at this all these years, we, we've developed ways to demonstrate fragmentation at shooting demos and in con, conser, conservation, conversations with individual hunters. And so we've learned the ropes of how to communicate what we've found so that we're providing information so hunters can make more informed decisions. And it wasn't always the easy way. It wasn't just, hey, hey, here's the gospel, read it and make your change. We know that's not how change happens. You know, it's like trying to get a, a Chevy guy to drive a Ford. You know, that's not an easy process because you know what you know because it's what you've always done. So, I think trying to share that information, there's a real art to it, and and using science and conveying it and having resulting changes in behavior to ameliorate the problems you identify with your science, that is conservation. And we have a long, long, deep history of conservation in hunting. I mean, look at the all the acts that have been passed and, and look at how populations have been recovered. It's by using science, the, the, the products of scientific inquiry, and then adapting how we manage ourselves you know, it's not just a top-down thing. We hunters have done this. We have a history of this. And so when you share it in, the, in, 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 a, in a I'm okay, you're okay way, the hunter's response is, I had no idea that I left that many fragments in that gut pile. Of course, I don't want to potentially, you know, expose scavenging wildlife. And it's not just scavengers, not just vultures. You know, it's you know, scavenging wildlife. And and even predators, top predators, will also scavenge gut piles because it's hard to make a living out there. So if there's a, a, a fresh meal they're ready to go, we've even seen goshawks feeding on gut piles. Um, so anyway, and, and I think... So what we're doing in the partnership and getting back to your original question, which was, how is it going? Are we there? No, we're just aligning philosophically. We're saying, hey, we have some information that is of interest to us, not just because of the science and because it has the potential to poison some scavenging wildlife, but it really has the potential to arm, if you will, groups that are against hunting. And that's of paramount importance when we go forward in how we respond as hunters to this new information, because if we just say we don't care, then the rest of the non-hunting public, um, that doesn't sit very well, right? We, we want to make sure that they know, even though we harvest some of these animals to eat, and yes, we kill them, we damn sure care about their viability into the future. We want to see them available and thriving populations into the future, and that's hard for some people to 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 come to grips with, and so I think coming at it from a, um, a conservation side of it is easier some ways with most non hunting communities or birding communities. I can go talk about condors and lead with a non hunting community, and they're like, "Oh, simple. Let's just get rid of the lead." Um, but it, it's uh, it's not quite that easy, you know. It, we're not just going to change our behavior because uh, you know some redneck from Bakersfield says you need to use a non lead bullet. Um, and surely not when it comes from um, a guy who's been working on California condors. I mean, there's yeah, a lot of baggage to unpack there. So what we're doing is aligning philosophically with individuals and groups to say, we have some information to share f- with you, and we suspect it might inform changes in your, in your practices that might benefit wildlife. And more important than just talking to the hunters is we have the, all the rest of the communities we need to talk to, to demonstrate to them that, hey, I and Leland are hunters, and yet we are also conservation scientists. So um, bridging both of those gaps and knowing how to talk to each audience and how to effectively communicate with them is what the partnership's all about. It's not just saying, here are the studies, read them, and, and uh, go, go as you will. So um, aligning philosophically is where we are now. And we're very pleased that it's going as smoothly as it is. Even during COVID with this pandemic, Leland and I spend most of our time on the road. One year, I drove 110,000 miles driving around the Western States um, to show, you know, share with people what we're doing and doing our ballistics demonstrations and doing presentations and all that. And even since covid people are now calling us because of podcasts like this, you know, there are agencies that are calling us and saying, Hey, we, we want to engage and we want to um, um, initiate conversations with our hunters about lead, but man, it's a hot potato. Um, we'd, we'd like to to talk with you guys about how you've had, where you've had success, where you haven't, and, and maybe initiate those conversations here. So gaining new partners and especially with some groups that, that if you look at our website and you look at the partner list, um, you don't see just a bunch of bird groups there. You see a bunch of hunting groups and that's because that's, that's part of it. Preserving our wildlife conservation and hunting heritage. They're one in the same.
1: Yeah. I mean, those are, those are the things I just, I love about what you're doing and, you know, our listeners know, I mean, we talk about conservation, we're passionate about it. We're, we're passionate and huge supporters of the use of science, you know, in conservation and, and how, how, you know, that can um, lead to the betterment of hunting and like, there's two really key things, you know, as well about the partnership that really resonates with me. Um, and, it, and as one is, is your guys's passion around like, the, the hunting community is leading this story and that's very important to both of you it's so so obvious you know if people could see your faces here on the screen you could just yeah i mean you can you can hear it in their voices and uh, i i love that and i love that enthusiasm and that positive thing about uh you know getting control of or, or staying in control of this narrative because you know as you know it's It's you know the the smear and fear campaigns have and still are out there on this topic, and the other thing I really love about the way you're approaching this is, uh, and and this is right off the website, kind of like one one of your principles, uh, you know, for the partnership is designing and promoting voluntary measures to increase the use of non lead ammunition, and that's cool because you very easily I'm sure could have just said california is the model like here's a couple of us we're in suits and we're going to talk to our legislators and we've got millions of dollars behind us and just state by state and province by province and you know across you know across the continent you just get it legislated 10 years bang you're done you guys are you know you done your job and it's not you're really blending this hunter led narrative it has to be people on the ground wanting to move this forward with voluntary measures. And, uh, and, and I like that, like, cause then, you know, you get the ownership, you get the buy-in where man to go. And and I've got my hackles raised up a little bit in some discussions about, you know, it gets thrown out there right away. Like, well, let's just go to the lawmakers with this. And I'm just like, hang on a second here, time out one. That's not the way to get the buy-in to the, with the hunting community that sets up for ad Adversarial conversations with the non-hunting public. And I'm also like, you know what? I've got a list this long with everybody else of things that our policymakers should be working on for the betterment of wildlife, especially habitat-related stuff. Um, then to take this on, which is something we can actually take care of ourselves. So um man, those things are just, they're cool about what, what you're doing. And yeah, I congratulate you on, on taking that, that, uh, ownership voluntary. And it's literally like almost a person to person type movement.
0: Yeah. I mean, it starts like that, but the reality is, I mean, who do, who do we as hunters listen to, right? I mean, we, we listen to each other. Um, that's just kind of the way it is. We, we read in our magazines about innovations in hunting and conservation and technology and we talk to each other around the campfire and that's how you know the behavior around hunting changes that's how that's how decisions get made um and it'd be like you say it'd be real easy for and there's lots of people who fall into this trap right That they say oh well we'll just ban it and like chris was saying that's one of the things we really focus on is is talking to those non-hunting members of the public who have a say in, in wildlife management. I mean, there's no denying that you know, the public has a say in how wildlife is managed, but we wanna to demonstrate to them that hunters are not the enemy here. That hunters are the ones who can solve this issue, that can make sure that hunting can continue, but also make sure that we're providing these very valuable food sources for wildlife to use. Um, And it is really important for, you know, those eagles and, you know, those vultures and those other scavengers coming in and feeding on those at that time of year to set them up um, during, you know, periods when they're probably starting migrations and and figuring out how to get from Northern Canada down into, you know, where it's a little easier to winter in in the U S and all these different things. And, and hunters are, are really the only ones who can solve that. And we can go into all the the reasons why a ban can only be so effective. And, you know, a, a big part of it is just people own ammunition, right? I mean, yeah, you can ban everything you want, but I, I bet you guys have at least a couple of boxes of ammo in the closet somewhere. And I don't, you know, the rolls in, um you know the laws in canada are different than the us at the us it's a uh, there's can be some serious stockpiles you know i talked to a lot of folks who just say i've got enough to last me the rest of my life i don't need to go buy ammo um so you're not changing any behavior if you do that right i mean you're not changing the benefit to wildlife people like to say oh well we passed the law we've solved it yeah. no you didn't you passed a law install anything until you actually get people to look at it and say hey this behavior actually benefits me and the wildlife and my community in a way that that creates a better future for all of us uh, and that's what we're all about we're not about you know forcing someone into we're about creating a better future um, for hunting and for conservation and for the wildlife that benefits from it <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I mean, that whole legislative route, the responsibility, you know, once the law is passed, gets passed on to our law enforcement agencies, like, okay, here's another thing, you know, when you stop and check the hunter, you know, like hunting license loaded, like now you got to, you know, determine, you know, what ammunition they have and stuff. And they're not figuring that out. Yeah. Yeah, You can't even even tell
0: half the time. So it doesn't really matter. but there's a the, whole, there's the, a host of reasons
1: why it just. Yeah. The success is relies on law enforcement where w- what you guys are doing. It's just like, no, this is like, like ourselves. We're going to, we're going to make, make this change happen and do it through education and science. And um, yeah, that's just, that's just super cool. Uh, let's, let's, so let's launch into um the impacts to wildlife. I think people are going to be really interested in that converse, uh, you know, that conservation side of of like what's happening out there because, you know, I'm sure you've heard this. Um, Okay, I've been hunting my whole life. I'm 54 years old and I've never seen anything out there that's like sick and dying and like, you know, flopping around on the ground and, you know, all, all this kind of kind of stuff to say, oh, this animal's poisoned or toxic or, you know, or something like that. So you know one cave okay, maybe it's you know it's not happening uh it's not happening um very often or maybe the odd species you know like the golden eagle or something like that but what what is um that you know of um you know you, you kind of mentioned a few species what what guilds of the wildlife world is this hitting that we know of
2: leland you probably have the um... The, i'm remembering a slide from one of your last presentations on the eagles and the percentages of eagles that that die and then um it it narrows it you you'll remember it better than i
0: yeah yeah so if you look at um in the u.s every eagle that is gathered up that's died is sent to the u.s center for wildlife health um, or wildlife health center and they get processed and kind of get a a cause of mortality assigned to them. And they did a big research project looking at um, I think it was close to 30 years of mortalities um, across bald and golden eagles uh, and established four leading causes of death for bald eagles and golden eagles. Top four for both are the same. They're in different places in their priority um, for them. For bald eagles, top the leading cause of death is poisoning. Um, for golden eagles, the fourth leading cause of death is poisoning. And this is all poisoning combined. So it's, um, you know, <rapenicized>, rat poison it? yeah, okay. rat poison, and, and lead poisoning, of course, is a part of that. Um, of those, 50%, over 50% of all poisoning mortality was caused from lead exposure. Um, so it's not uh, insignificant. If you, if you cut away all the other types of poisoning, Um, And I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I think lead poisoning still ends up being in the top four, Um, really for bald eagles. I think it's it's still in the top four leading causes of death. And this went through um, the waterfowl requirement for non-toxic shot as well, so it spanned that whole time period. Um, And it didn't. The proportion of mortality, so the number of eagles dying of each type, didn't change after the requirement for non-toxic shot, um, which is something we probably ought to address because people talk about non-toxic a lot. Um, non-toxic actually has a, a definition, a legal definition. It's a testing protocol that defines something as a non-toxic shot. They feed animals a shot over certain periods of time. If it doesn't cause mortality. It's defined as non-toxic. You notice we don't call our partnership the non-toxic partnership or the non-led partnership because there's no such thing in the world as non-toxic water is toxic at a certain level. So we're, we try to be really careful about this and say, look, what we're talking about is a defined source of mortality associated with lead exposure. And that's just mortality, right? That's not even just exposure. There's a recent study that came out of Montana that found that over 90% of golden eagles that were sampled showed high levels of lead exposure. And uh, proportion of those, I think it was close to 20 or 30 percent, were in kind of what we would consider a, um, you know, a kind of a lethal exposure range where they're actually um, at levels where they can be sick or die. Um, now, this is wildlife sampling, remember, so we're not, we don't have, we don't track every single animal. Um, often they're, they're captured, a sample is taken, and then they're released, so we may not know what the end result of that individual is. But the proportions give us an, an idea of what type of exposure we're seeing across those entire populations. And it's, it's a little bit shocking that it's that high during those times of year. That study was particularly looking at kind of winter birds, um, animals that are traveling through that area in the late fall, early winter,
2: kind of through that migration period. When, when people so, say, sorry. Thought you were finished.
0: No. Yeah, no, I'm just saying, I mean, it, it, that's just a very, very quick, I mean, there's hundreds of studies looking at lead exposure and a lot of it's in waterfowl and then it expands across a whole suite of different um, categories of species and they have documented lead exposure in everything from songbirds and raptors and waterfowl and upland birds and mammals and lizards and you know mammals as well but a lot of the stuff we look at is in
2: birds. So one one way I answer that question that you posed initially why you know I've 154 years old and I've hunted my whole life and I've never seen this this these sick birds out there and and why then are some species affected and why some are not um, I I will defer to everyone's experience with wounded or sickened wildlife or yourself for that matter. When you're sick and you don't feel good you're not standing out on the road, uh, asking for help, you know, wildlife that live in the wild, when they show that they are vulnerable and their fitness is a little less than the one next to them, they're the one that's going to be predated. So when an animal gets sick, they go hole up somewhere and hope to survive whatever the ailment is that they have without being predated. And, and, um, you know they're surely not going to be the ones that are uh, that are achieving the highest status to go and breed or to even survive. So they, the reason you don't see it is because they're sick, and when critters are sick they go hide. Um, when you start monitoring individuals with radio telemetry and numbered tags so that if they do die, then they can be reported. That's how you begin finding out about quantifying how many individuals are affected. And then you get into this debate about individuals versus populations. I have to back way up. And and this is probably another reason I need to change my title because I'm not uh, um, the the scientist that many folks out there are. I like to try and communicate the, the findings in our science in a, in a way that, that resonates. And that is knowing what you know about lead, would you make it available for consumption to wildlife? Most of the answers to that, almost, I think all with the exception of one individual in my 20 years doing this, the answer was, well, no, I wouldn't feed lead to an animal. Even if it didn't kill it, I I wouldn't do that. When you operate from that foundation of saying "Here's are the fragments in a gut pile, here are the species that feed on these gut piles, would you consider helping eliminate the potential for exposure? And most people will say yes. And the, the testimony there is, is not just our own personal experience. We have a program in northern Arizona and southern Utah whereby hunters are engaged by the state wildlife agencies, Arizona Game and Fish and Utah Division Natural Resources, and they are asking hunters to participate in measures, either using non-lead ammunition or removing the remains of shot animals from the field. And with the deer hunters on the Kaibab Plateau in Northern Arizona, and I bet you've never heard this statistic or any of your listeners, 87% annual participation for over a decade From the deer hunters that have been asked to participate and use non lead ammunition or haul the gut piles out of the field. Well, that small subset of hunters that we have engaged with, this technique has proven very efficient in getting and maintaining voluntary participation. So I think it demonstrates that ethic we were talking about earlier that if hunters are informed and if you ask for them, you know, the call of duty to help wildlife. They will respond in kind. So that gives us the, the, uh, the confidence that we can do this on a, on a, on a grander scale. Um, and nice. yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that cause I'll keep rambling otherwise.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now for, for, so I get I guess a few things here we'll just stay, we'll stay on, on birds. Um, in my experience, in my in our part of the world, uh, if I were to do a study, I would probably say, a substantial portion of carcasses and and you know gut piles and stuff that are left behind from big game hunting um, are cleaned up by crows and ravens. Uh, probably mostly crows. Um, man, it's you know, when there's something dead in our part of the world, um, cause there's like crows and you go into these areas and it's crows. Now are, do they have a different, as, as a species, do they have a different sensitivity? Cause they're more scavengers than, you know, like, a, um, the birds of prey. Cause I mean, crows are one of those things that, you know, anything that's out there, they're, you know, they've probably tried to eat it in, you know, in somebody's lifetime there, but are they as susceptible? Cause, they're probably, you know, at least in our part of the world, doing a lot of the, lot of the scavenging.
2: Yeah. It's ravens yeah. where we are. Yeah. Okay. But, but same thing. Um, and, and there have been studies, but again, nobody's studying those populations at an individual level. So you really can't say, and so the assumption goes, bald eagles, Ravens, crows, all the turkey vultures, all these other scavengers, they're doing so well by population. Can lead be, really be a problem? Well, you could you could make the argument that you know, um, look at humans. There are a lot of things that affect us. Look at COVID, but our population's still growing. So, is it a real problem? I mean, it, it's you have to decide how you're going to 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 view. Are you you have an opportunity to to eliminate or decrease the potential for lead exposure? It doesn't mean that you're if you don't do it the population will will crash it means it's one thing you can do to improve ecosystem health and so um i I get that all the time yeah i get that all the time with well eagles eagles are you know they're like they're like crows now they're doing so well do we really have to worry about it i was like wait a second that's not the first let's not forget that the recovery of the bald eagle or the peregrine falcon those are huge success stories in conservation so let's not forget that they were at one time not doing so well, and yes, now they are, but we wanna see that through into the future. Um, so the, well, now the, they're doing better.
0: We have to be clear about that too, right? They're doing better than they were when they were on the endangered species list. Exactly. So they're not doing as good as they were before Prior. all the human intervention and all the issues that we caused. So yeah. the fact that they're doing better now doesn't mean that they're doing great across the board either. Right. There's uh-huh. variation across all. Yeah, yeah. And how many well, are. And there's things like you were play.
1: talking about. Like goshawks being, you know, on, on carcasses and, you know, in our part of the world, the goshawk is, you know, a species at risk. Um, so, you know, a, a, a few individuals could have, you know, a significant impact, uh, you know, on, on the population there. And I mean, the, the whole, the whole argument you know, whether you're an argument or discussion, it's it's kind of like, you, you know, in my opinion, maybe people can relate to this and it's wounding loss and hunting. And it's like, I don't think there's a hunter out there that accepts even like 0.1% wounding loss. Like, it's just like, if, if it gave you any hunter a magic wand and said, you, you could have all the hunting in the world with no animal dying by a, a hunter be, wounded and lost, I don't think there's anybody out there that w- would not want that to be the reality and and to me this is like it's the same thing it's like just think of it as wounding loss right and it's like who wouldn't want that that to stop a, it just seems yeah, like so, a no winner
2: yeah one shot one well, if, kill if you think back to, right
1: yeah you
0: think <laughs> back to hunter ed and you think about kind of ownership of the bullet right that's a, something that's always stressed in hunter education is you know you're responsible for that bullet you have to know your target and what's before it and what's beyond. Um, I always look at that and say, okay, spatially, like in space, we need to know that. We need to know if there's something in front of it that we're going we to hit. need you know, if there's something behind it that we're going to hit and injure. We also need to think about that in time. Is there something after we've left the field that our bullets going to do that we're then responsible thing? It's the same concept as wounding loss. It's just the way that I think about it is within that context of I'm responsible for what this bullet does. The whole time it's out there, not just when it's in flight, but also when it's left behind in that food source. That's my responsibility as a hunter. And it's something that I have to own. And if I'm gonna own it, I'm gonna make sure it's not doing something that I don't want it to do. And that's why, you know, early on I made a decision with non-lit ammunition. It's because I started looking at the science and said, man, the science shows that there's some impacts happening here. And I don't want responsibility for them. Like that's not something I'm willing to ex- to accept as part of my hunting strategy. As my hunting tradition is accidentally having an impact. Everything I do when I squeeze that trigger should be by intent. I meant to do that. I meant to shoot that elk. I meant to drop that elk. I meant to put a hole in its heart. That's what I want to do, and that's where I want it to end.
2: And I'd like to reiterate now. Through... Oh, go ahead.
1: No, go ahead, Chris. Uh,
2: there's a little bit of a delay. Sorry about that. Um, I'd like to reiterate, too, that for, for your listeners who are the, hearing about this for the first time, especially for those listeners, that, you know, I want to recall that Leland said early on when he was told um, while doing his invasive species removal work, and I, I bust his chops a lot about, you know, getting that job because a lot of us wanted that job where we got to go get really good at, at effectively harvesting animals. Um, he said when he was asked or, or rather told that you'll be using non-lead, his first question was, what's that? And the second question was, why? And that's Leland, the guy, the co-founder of the non-lead partnership. We've all gone through this transition. Of learning about this and then thinking about it in new dimensions like time just like he said there and what happens to the remains of that bullet once we take our meat home well those other critters that hunt for a living and scavenge and and make a living doing that they're the ones out there using that and we do have a responsibility to that but I guarantee you a good good proportion of hunters had never thought about that before and if they're allowed the time and yeah. space to, to comprehend and, and in, take that in, they usually say, yeah, I'm going to switch. However, that too takes time. Because it's just like saying, you know you you watch a, a fitness video uh, on, you know, we're gonna the, the hunting challenge, we're gonna all get in shape together for next year's hunting season. You get really excited about that when you yeah, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna eat better, I'm gonna and, and philosophically, and you're you're lined out and you're gonna do that. But then do you do it? Eh, maybe a little bit. So this thing takes time. And that's what some of the greatest critics of our approach being, being that we're pushing for a voluntary incentive based outreach and education program, some of our greatest critics say, we don't have time. This needs to happen tomorrow. Well, that's like saying, I'm going to lose a hundred pounds tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. You have to take it step by step and be respectful. I mean, you can do it,
0: but you won't like how it is. No,
1: no. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. Now just. Mm-hmm. You no, know, there's I, something else that I thought of. Sorry. No, just kind of on the topic just, of just birds. I was reading, reading this in an article today, and, and just sort of on birds. I, I mean, this is this is fishing. It's a little a little different, but it was about it was a study from New England on loons and it had to do with lead, lead fishing weights. And like, that's kind of a whole, whole different conversation, but still related, right? Just, just a different, you know, group of, group of us, you know, different, diff, same bunch of us, just different season, different, different gear. But it, um, it said, uh, just tr- tr- that nearly half the adult loons found sick or dead during the breeding season, in New England were diagnosed uh, with confirmed or suspected lead poisoning from the ingestion of lead fishing weights. And, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a different thing, um, there, but I mean, they're literally, you know, like, like eating it and, um, yeah, it's, it, yeah, the whole lead fishing weight, we'll leave that for another podcast, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, I just, I just thought that was an interesting one that just kind of was a little bit different than, uh, than the scavengers, but still happening.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that gets back into more of, um, it's more like the the lead shot issue where it's it's picked up and when it's confused as something else rather than with lead bullets where it's embedded in the food source, um, with lead shot and lead fishing weights, it seems to get confused as another important piece of the ecosystem, like with lead shot, often it's confused as grit by by the species and they pick that up and try to make use of it as if it's pebbles or something like that. Um, same, my understanding with loons is that, you know, with the lead fishing weights, it's shiny enough, they, they grab it thinking maybe it's a small bait fish or something along those lines. Um, but it's not in the food source itself, it's confused as a valuable piece of the ecosystem that is used.
1: Um, Bloody so heavy bait fish.
0: Yeah, nice heavy one. I mean, a lot of calories there, right? Nice fat. Eight uh, but the other, the other pieces we were talking about the populations and the, and there's a, a great article that was published earlier this year in or well earlier last year, I guess now, um, in Boone and Crockett called uh, "Wicked Issues," and it was um, it really goes it talks a little bit about the discussion around non lead ammunition and talks about the discussion around what we can and can't say as far as population level impacts with some interviews with some pretty talented scientists and i think that if, if people are curious about you kind know, of what we're talking about with population level impacts what we can and can't say as far as that goes that article is worth a read um and you can find it on their on their website in the moon rocket website. we'll put it in
1: the we'll put it in the show notes huh that's that's uh yeah, I'll dig that one up, but for sure we'll we'll put that in in the show notes. Now, I was just I was reading an article. I think it might have been in a publication called the Mountain Journal. Um, it's fa- fairly recent, uh, and the author was talking about, and this is kind of an interesting one about uh, prairie dog shooting. And uh, so here in here in British Columbia, uh, like in southeastern BC, where we live. Um, Columbia ground squirrels uh that is what we have um you're not allowed to like shoot them on public land anymore because they're the primary species for a subspecies of the American badger that live here in the Rocky Mountain region that's uh endangered so they can, you, you can still shoot them um you know on private land obviously people aren't eating them it's a sport thing you know same with the prairie dogs but this author kind of did the math on this and came up with uh five million pounds of lead contaminated prairie dog carcasses left on the killing fields for scavengers to unwittingly ingest and man that's one that i've thought a lot about and even though you know we've gone part way with the legislation here in british columbia removing you know just killing these things for fun on public land it's still happening on private land and a lot of people do it and you know darn well i mean they're laying out there for red tail hawks for the coyotes at nighttime and and skunks and stuff like that and man there has got to be a lot of transfer of of lead into the food chain
0: that's a that's an interesting conversation because then on the other side of that right i mean if you remove the shooting then what's the other because if you're talking about kind of agricultural pivots or where a lot of the shooting is happening, um, you're having heavy impacts on that farmer, and they're using some of that shooting as a control of of that kind of impact to a certain extent. But if you remove the shooting, then what's the other way to control that? Then you move into rodenticide, and then you have your own impacts that come along with that. So there's a great study out of Oregon that looked at um, kind of the, the level of fragmentation in ground squirrel carcasses, me ground squirrel carcasses from different ammunition types, how species were actually using those carcasses. There's a 300% increase in use by those Raptors after a shooting event, after people go out and shoot a bunch of ground squirrels. Um, and there's some potential benefit actually to those Raptors, to the nestlings, cause that's generally when you're seeing that happen right now, there's gotcha. this great available food source that can actually improve growth. For, for the fledglings, but also have, potentially has a negative impact. So it's not as cut and dry as you might think it could be, but there's an easy, kind of, step in there that if you pull the lead out of it, then what you get is a benefit to the farmer. You get a benefit to the raptor. It increases raptor populations, which also helps to increase control of those ground squirrel populations because there are predators around to feed on them, and. Um, on on top of that, you've got, you know, improved growth and all those other aspects as well. So, you know, thinking about all these different pieces, that's a lot of the stuff that we spend a lot of time considering and how how do we address this in a way that benefits as many or as much as possible um, through this process. And we really do find that non-let and a lot of that is a, is a good addition to the system.
1: Yeah. And, you know, maybe people don't know this, um, if you you've commented, you've seen it on my social media, but, um, um, there is a copper polymer 22, uh, round now. So it's pulverized copper. That's put together with a polymer and, um, I'm using it now for snowshoe hair hunting. Uh, I've shot it at the range and man works, works for me. So, yeah it's I mean, that's the education piece I think, which is really important to you guys is making this connection between this is available and you're doing these things, and that's how you move, remove lead out of that system like you like you were talking about. So, that's yeah, really interesting.
2: yeah, you say you and know without... it, but to be careful too, saying it's available. With any ammunition these days, it's being produced it's being- and it's damned effective. I mean, and it wasn't the case with the first generations of most of these bullets. Um, they don't have a, a great reputation from the word go. But as with anything, the developments over time now, I think we can confidently say that there are non lead alternatives that, that you can get the exact same performance out of um, for you know, the terminal ballistics and, and doing the job. I mean, I'm shooting a, a 17 caliber and, and I hear people, you know, it's so funny on both ends of this spectrum of the, of these, these debates, you hear people say, Oh, now I got to buy a new rifle. And you say, uh, okay. And that's a bad like, that's thing. A bad right? thing. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah. let's, Let's rejoice in the fact that we can buy a new rifle and we can hopefully find ammunition for it and hopefully it's non-lead ammunition and then you go out and shoot it and the stuff is is phenomenal, the 17 cal um, ammunition that I'm using and uh, yeah, that, that we couldn't say that, you know, uh, 10 years ago, we didn't have, you know, good alternatives at the time for the the smaller calibers.
1: Now what about some of the like s- switch to mammals? Um so coyotes, obviously. Um is is a key scavenger. Um, you know, on on gut pals, carcasses, the the, the prairie dogs we we're talking about. And what we were talking about at the opening, like some a big mammal, like a black bear, grizzly bear. Like how how is you know the amount of lead that they're going to ingest so if a grizzly bear rolls in on an elk carcass like it's getting all of it like in one meal there's not going to be much left over from from the crows so like what do we know about the amount that an animal like that's going to ingest and whether or not it's just gonna do like humans do it's going to end up in bones and teeth maybe passed on you know uh females to the fetuses or whatever but is there much work been done in, on mammals
2: Not much, and and they process differently. And you you mentioned it, you alluded to it earlier with the physiological differences of each of these species and how they process food, and specifically the pH of the gut, the acidity of the gut has a lot to do with it as well. Um, But some species we're talking about, that the non-mammal species are obligate scavengers, so all of their diet is going to be the remains of animals in the field that they find. That's very different than an opportunistic scavenger, like uh, a bear. And mammal species, they found, I think there was, um, uh, that I can recall, there's uh, a mountain lion, they've done some testing there, and they've done some testing in bears. And it doesn't seem to um, assimilate into the system, and stay in the system and have the deleterious effects that have been identified in those, those species like the avian species that have a higher pH in their gut. Um, and the same thing with humans. If you eat enough of it and you're exposed enough, of course you can you can have higher lead levels as a result. Um, but the way our guts are, are set up and the, the way we process the lead and the frequency of exposure to it um, studies have not yielded that it's, it's a, it's a major issue with, with, uh, coyotes and things like that. But again, I would, I would hold out, um, with, with saying that, you know, more studies, this is the beauty of science, more studies will yield more information on that. And, and just like the raptors we were talking about earlier, and I know you asked about mammals, but I really wanted to get this in there when raptors would die, let's say of a collision or um, it was found near a power pole. Well, without confirmation of what it died of, it's only been in recent years that lead is on the radar of folks that are collecting these birds. And so just because we haven't identified it, you first have to ask the question, were you looking for it? And with the way lead affects species, it, is, it affects their their central nervous system. And it affects different species in different ways, but it messes with their their um, whether it be visual acuity or um, you know having the the with humans it's hand eye coordination things like that. So when you start messing with a raptor or a high top end predator's ability to navigate a landscape and and ambush prey, for example, lead can affect them in that way too. So if a bird comes in emaciated and it's starved to death or it's dehydrated, um, people weren't saying, oh, I wonder if it's lead poisoning. And now that they're beginning to look, there's more and more data. So I suspect with the question about mammals, um, no, so far the studies have not shown that lead is as big of an issue as it has been identified as being with other species. But with time and looking at it, we'll we'll find out more. Um, But to speculate on it, I think is, is dangerous. And and that leads into, you know, speculations or assumptions of what it means for humans. And, and I know that was one part you wanted to talk about. And we have some very strong feelings in, in that regard. So uh, uh, of how how to navigate that, because we're not doctors, we're not MDs, yeah. you know, that's yeah. not our, our MO. But what we can say is we we can and have quantified the percentages of, say, packaged meat and things like that. And how many how many of those packaged uh, packages of meat do contain lead? But all we're saying is here's the presence of it and the potential for exposure. We're not saying what people should go do with that. Just providing that information. Now, now just thinking about mammals real quick. Um,
0: oh, yeah, so go if we ahead. think about if we think about birds. There's there's a couple of things that talked about just from the biology you know the physiology of the birds but there's also the kind of the feeding strategy that you have to think about like a bird can fly across the canyon and get to that next carcass in 20 minutes um whereas you know that bear that coyote is going to have to walk all the way across and find it and if you think about the crows and then an eagle queuing in on those crows you've got this kind of feedback loop that seems to happen with birds um with their physiology, and then with the feeding strategy, and then everything else. Now, With mammals, one, like Chris was saying, you have to look for it, and they're much harder to study, right? I mean, you can't can't just put a trap out and um, hope to find a whole bunch of birds in an area, and you can't really do that with anything else either, but I think it's a little easier to work on birds, maybe, than it is to get the data out um, out of mammals. So there's just some additional challenges with mammals that go along with that. One that Changes their ability to feed on those resources a little bit, but also for us as scientists to even study them and figure out what exactly is happening with them. Um, so, I think it's just kind of some important things to be thinking about. Just thinking critically about how that exposure can happen across across that time and in that particular time of hunting when there's a lot of carcasses available over short periods of time.
1: Yeah. Now. It correct me if, if I'm wrong, like, like part of our, our growth and knowledge here is, is kind of a little bit tied, you know, to technology as well. I mean, like there's the science, but being able to x-ray stuff, um, you know, as, has increased our understanding of, of what's happening a lot. And, and is this right? Am I getting this right? Like part of the issue with the lead, um, is is we're getting down to like molecular and such tiny, tiny particles. Like you'd never, even if you were eating it yourself, you'd actually never know. Like it's, it's, it's that fine. And so, you know, and this has been part of like my journey here is when we're talking like, I mean, like what's left behind. It's like, it's the gut pile, right? And the hide, like I've hit it, the animal up in the front end. So there's some, blood shock and a hole and stuff by the rib cage and front shoulders but I'm taking that with me not, if there's any fragments I might be the one that ends up not not wildlife but my understanding is is like there's still a lot in the gut piles cuz these little tiny fragments are moving you know like the little the little particles that are in outer space right that can you know cause damage to spacecraft and it's enough in the gut pile like I can't visually look at it and go oh man like there's some big obvious holes, you know, like in the stomach of the liver, or, you know, or whatever, but it's like, it it's there. And is, is, is this, is this part of what we're learning? Like, is this real?
0: Yeah, so this kind of gets into um, bullet performance and how bullets actually work when they strike something. Right? So if you think about a, a, a lead core copper jacketed bullet, you've got a soft kind of malleable core of lead, and then a thin jacket of copper that can then split and extend, um, but also helps to control the expansion to a certain extent because you can change the thickness of that jacket. But as soon as that soft lead core is exposed, it's under tremendous pressure. I and mean, we're shooting bullets uh, 2,900 feet per second or so, 2,800 feet per second. And when it actually strikes the animal, depending on your range, it's still probably going over 2,000 feet per second. So it's a ton of pressure for it to be under and giving how soft lead is, you're seeing that smearing and stripping of material away from the front of the bullet as it passes through. That's part of the reason why you see kind of that rounded mushroom shape, right, where you can see that smearing even coming down the the sides of the jacket, the interior of the jacket when it's exposed. And all of those very small pieces peel off and then project, depending on how much weight they have left with them, away from the line of the bullet passing through the animal so your your traditional wound channel which is from the intact slug that we sometimes find on the far side of the animal is surrounded by kind of this cloud of very small pieces that are stripping off and radially kind of distributing away from the path of the bullet as they peel away and get kind of pushed into the surrounding tissue most of the damage there is still caused by that Major chunk of bullet creating kind of pressures that create a shock wave that tear tissue um, or stretch tissue beyond its ability to stretch anymore, then creates tearing. And that's how we're really killing animals that blood loss um, from that tearing that's happening. But all those little pieces now are embedded in the tissue from along the path of the bullet. And that's where we see um, this discussion around what's left in the gut pile because it's from point of expansion or impact until the bullet stops or exits. It's going to be peeling off those little pieces. And as it slows down, it's not peeling as much because it's not under as much pressure. Um, When it first starts, you tend to get kind of a a larger wound cavity as well as the kind of a, a larger amount of the fragmentation happening with that higher energy, higher pressure impact from the beginning. So if you cut open an animal and you look along the path of that bullet, or you look at a ballistic gel or an X ray, you're going to see. The, if you're looking perpendicular to the path of the bullet, you're going to see a cloud of fragmentation that kind of tracks the entire length of that wound channel. And so we, as a hunter, right, cut out the internal organs that we just put a big hole in and discard it because we just put a big hole in it. And we've got to be careful because when we talk about gut piles, we'll often get someone who's like, oh, well, I don't shoot it in my gut, so it doesn't matter. And it's like, we talk about gut piles because that's all the organs. It's all the internal pieces of the animal. We just call it the gut pile because that's usually the most of it. That's the majority of the organs that are left is that, and the lungs. And sometimes what's left of the heart, if we hit the heart, that's the gut pile. It's all those vital organs and
2: the actual intestines
0: and guts and all of that.
2: Um, We actually see that... uh Uh, I was just going to say on the social media, we see people say, well, we don't, we won't shoot them in the guts. That's how, how uninformed these guys are. It's like, oh, okay, we should have said awful. And then everybody would have known what we're talking about. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But really, I mean, it comes back to that, right? So
0: that, that those early studies that Chris did, did that. Exactly. Right. He, you know, those guys went out and I was not part of this, so I should probably let him tell the story, but they killed the animals. They gutted them, they took all of those organs and they put them in a bin and x-rayed those to demonstrate or to document how much is actually left in the parts of the animal that we leave behind. And then took the rest out and dealt with that. Um, and x rays looking at kind of those packages of meat and how that how those remaining fragments may pass through the cleaning process and packaging process.
2: And um, just ask your local meat cutter. I mean you know, we we have a sample size of if we're lucky, we might you know some some hunters in North America might kill two or three animals a year, big game animals. So you have a sample size of two or three a year. Go talk to your meat cutter, ask them if they ever run into lead and if they see it. And yeah, they they see it, <laughs> yeah. but but it's yeah, never yeah. but it's never been identified as being a real issue other than an encumbrance. You know, if you bite on a piece of it, which is rare. So therefore it doesn't exist, but it's through those X-rays that we see. And you mentioned earlier, they're so small and the smaller they are, the more digestible they are because of their surface area. And so, you know, a large chunk, yes, might not be consumed by a bird, but what if that bird is approaching breeding season and it's looking for bits of bone, small bits of bone, and because they need that in calcium, especially the females to lay an egg, they need to mobilize calcium. Well, what if they're looking for small bits of of bone and whatnot, and they happen to be selecting more for those little hard bits in there? These are all theories and hypotheses that I'm not saying are, are conclusive. These are areas where we could we could use some some uh, some more science there. But a picture speaks a thousand words, and whether it's a ballistics gel block that we shoot and X-ray, or just hold up and sh- and take a picture of it or it's a gut pile that we've collected and x-rayed to show the fragmentation. When people see that, that's usually all they need. They said, wow, I had no idea. And then you tell them that, and yes, your bullet, this bullet we happened to shoot was a uh, a bonded, uh, polymer tip bonded lead core, uh, copper jacketed bullet, and it retained 90% of its mass. And they think, well, perfect, that's a great bullet. And then you show them the x-ray, here are the fragments. And there's, there's 110 percent. Looks like, <laughs> yeah, 10 percent of that mass, but it's in the form of a hundred tiny visible fragments. That is amazing.
1: I've seen and some of those really
2: X-rays.
1: I've seen some of those yeah, X-rays in the, the gels. I'll I'll, 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 try to, you know, in the in the coming months here and stuff, get stuff like that out on social media for people to see. But what did you call it, snow? snowstorm effect or something like that like it's yeah they, yeah that's so what those x-rays look like of the wound channel like it's yeah, it looks like a galaxy shocking.
2: you know yeah you look at you see the stars with the naked eye and you throw a spotting scope up and then you see the stars <laughs> it's just like that and it's called the snowstorm effect it was first identified in um in wartime when they were dealing with bullet wounds in soldiers And so they would take out the slug, but it's not like the old John Wayne movie, you know, where they dig in there with forceps and pull it out and wash it with whiskey and plunk. there's the remainder of the bullet. All those fragments remain in in that carcass or in the human. And when you take a a radiograph, an x-ray of it, you can see it and that's what they identified. They called it the snowstorm effect.
1: That's why they always drink a swig of the whiskey, like the patient does before the guy pulls the bullet out and uses it for anesthetic, right? Because the whiskey like like (laughs) neutralizes the lead that got into his blood. (laughs) No, it's not the. um, So, so just kind of like like you guys said, you're not medical doctors and stuff, but like on on the topic of like lead in the meat, this clean organic wild meat that we're bringing home, putting in our freezer, eating, feeding our kids, um, growing up on that sort of stuff. Like what 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 can you share with what we've learned about what's in our freezers afterwards? What's what's happening? How much is it? enough to hurt humans because same thing right you've probably heard this you know my grandfather and father and i've been eating all this stuff and we still got 10 fingers and 10 toes and all our kids did and stuff like what's the deal i'll
2: I'll tell you this from one study that we did that i'm closest to um and leland said earlier you know the study that i did i was a participant on the study and the primary author is granger hunt and i'm going to defer to to, to, to him because he was the, the chief scientist at the time. Um, so give credit where credit's due. But in the other study that we did, we did quantify the rates of fragmentation all the way down to the packaged meat. And we found 32% of the burger from 30 different deer processed at 30 different processors to make sure that we didn't have a skewed data set because one processor included more bloodshot meat in the burger. We did 30 deer, 30 different processors, and 32% of the burger had metallic evidence of lead. And of course, there was probably some copper in there, but we did, we did identify some of those fragments as being lead. Um, 32% of the burger had lead. After that, there were, as, as just with any, um, any scientific endeavor, you know, somebody's going to say, well, is that repeatable? And others said, well, that's because they did something to skew it. And we're going to do our own study, and I think the next study found 27%, and then another study found 17%. So there are papers out there that have quantified and can demonstrate the probability of lead in the meat that we take home and consume. So myself as a hunter, I will say this. Having children consuming only game meat and beef that we raise ourselves I chose to shoot non-lead to eliminate the potential for lead exposure, no matter how how um, the probabilities were. I just thought this is an easy thing I can do. Plus, I'm going to make sure that the gut pile I left in the field is clean for scavenging wildlife. That's kind of the whole package choice for each individual hunter to make, and that's the choice that I made. Am I going to espouse you know, what other people should do no, but we can sure as hell share with you what the probability and the potential for exposure might be and let you make that decision. And that's how we keep it clean, I think. Whereas other people might say, you know, and we saw this when, when again, once again, I was naive and I didn't want to believe that people would use the, the studies that we had provided and the results from those to say things like the headlines we saw, hunters knowingly poisoning their kids. We never said that. We said, here's the potential for exposure based on one study. And here are four more studies. You make your own mind up. You make your own decision.
1: Huh. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've done a bit of reading, you know, on, on the human health side of things. And I think the same as the wildlife science, it's like there's some stuff they know and some stuff there's questions on. Um, uh, it seems like, basically like there's no safe level of lead um in in your blood like in in the human body but i had also read that it's like but there's been no reported effects in humans at lead blood lead concentrations that are um below 2 milligrams per deciliter so above that then like there's a whole bunch of like you know, the the neurological effects and, you know, all, all types of things. It seems seems to be a big one. It affects organs and, and the nervous system in uh, people, the same as what you were talking about in birds, right? Like it's it's um, having some some kind of neurological uh, impacts when it gets into it. And, and it kind of sounds like, you know, medical science is, is tough, but sorting out, you know, and isolating that is, as being – a causal factor for things like ADHD, which seems to be like, you know, really on on the increase in those those sorts of things. I'd also read some studies, you know, even from stuff even here from Canada, uh, Quebec and Ontario and even in Greenland and stuff about the very, very high blood lead levels in indigenous peoples because their consumptions of um, Country foods is is you know wild game is higher than us the you know sort of average average citizen anyways and um, some very high numbers and right after after hunting season like within that five months it was like some pretty pretty scary stuff.
0: I think there's a couple of things we've got to be thinking about here. One is consumption of lead is not the only source of exposure. For people who are around firearms, right? I mean, there's these lead acetates in primers. Um, there's a small explosion going on next to, you know, uh, lead material with high heat and pressure that can create aerosols. So, saying that consumption is what's driving all exposure for someone who shoots a firearm, I think is something we've got to be really careful about. More yeah, than totally. likely, a lot of that exposure is happening from the act of shooting itself. And you see that with competition shooters and folks who spend a lot of time at firing ranges and things like that, is that they have much higher likelihood of, of lead exposure. Um,
1: and like, I'd also like, read some stuff about reloaders. Yeah, who, uh, same same packing thing. pretty pretty high high right. levels and in, in them, so with
0: Similar things, right? You're dealing with that outer sliced lead that's now on you know the dirty dirty cases. Um, removing spent primers and everything that comes along with that and all kind of the contamination that's associated. And then there's casting lead. That's a whole other thing um, into bullets uh, or fishing weights or anything like that. So we, we just have to be cautious about how we how we talk about this. I think the the easiest way, like Chris said, is, look, we know that there's some rates of fragmentation that's happening. We know that we're probably unable to Capture it all in our processing. Um, and so we're we're we are running some risk of having it slip through into our food. And if you have a concern about that, there's a very easy solution. And it comes in some great technology, some great bullets that let you both kill the animal where you want, get the clean food you want, and leave a clean food source behind for wildlife. Um, Absolutely. The other thing that I think about a lot is. We've got these new hunters coming on who their their exclusive interest in this is getting food. Um, and I'm really worried that as people learn about the potential for lead exposure, they get turned off of the idea of going hunting. Um, and I whenever I talk to people about kind of this new pathway to hunting, or, you know these adult onset hunters, I think as is, is people have been calling on this, Um, here's a huge resource for those folks to say, look, you want to go hunting, you're worried about getting clean food, you can still participate, you can still go hunt and not have any of the risk that you might have thought you were worried about um, along with that. We can completely remove this potential contaminant that you may be thinking about or worried about or might turn you off of the idea of hunting and you can You can use a different tool, a different bullet technology to participate and uh, and basically sidestep that whole barrier to being involved in hunting. So, if we can talk to those kind of locovores, those um, sustainable foodies, all those folks about how this is a great tool to get into hunting and get that clean food, I think that's another win for kind of hunting and the future of hunting as a whole.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think these that's that's a uh, a whole aspect of this and a whole um, you know, group of our listeners that are gonna be like really interested in this, you know, as well. And and as you guys probably know, there's a segment of the population out there that, you know, it's tried and true, been this, you know, handed down generations. They're they're not they're not gonna change, they're gonna resist, they're gonna they're gonna balk at this stuff. But the the value I see in 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 what you're saying and you know and and saying here's the information here's what we're learning here's what we know like that's a that's a really important group of people that are probably going to want to absorb you know as much of that information they can to make those smart choices which yeah I do believe they're they're it's true they're getting into you know those into hunting because they're making lifestyle choices for themselves and and for the betterment of the planet like i mean i i know new hunters are they're interested in it because you know they've been educated about the impacts of you know the industrial farming and you know and all, all that kind of stuff so this is another little piece that i think um it, these people are going to want to learn you know more about which you know hopefully we'll be able to to help them with that in in the future and and I think one of the last pieces, kind of on the human health thing, which I think is very important for listeners, is from the way I understand it, medical studies that have been done on you know um, uh, lead in in our uh, in human blood, like in in us, uh, is kind of it's been done on adults, and the segment that it's been missing out there is is children in, in understanding th- their bodies dealing with, cause kids are hunting, um, they're eating meat or we're bringing it home and giving it to them. So, so a, from what I understand, like some of the medical information about different levels and stuff, um, isn't really reflective of the risk that that is for children and as well for women that are going to like have kids is if, if women are hunting more and more women are hunting and you're, ingesting the meat. Our bodies like to put lead into our bones and our teeth, which come time when a woman's pregnant, it's got to start pulling stuff out of bones and teeth for for the baby. And there's a transfer of that stored lead. And I think that information is, is probably going to strike uh, the heart of a few, you know, a few people that are listening to this. And like Leland says, it's simple. There's a choice out the technology exists and it's simply changing, you know, changing what, um, what goes in, into your firearms. So. Uh,
2: yeah. I I, 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 I'm sorry. I, I, I break it down in, in uh, again, more, more, even more simplistic and, and try to, uh, capture it as as informed decisions that's what we want we want to make informed decisions and this information everybody does helps. everybody does and I, I i used to when we would go do the sports shows i'd carry a, a salt shaker and in that salt shaker i'd have a, a piece of mylar over it you know to keep the salt from coming out but i put a few specks of pepper in there and a way to think about it that I would share with people and say, OK, you, everybody has a salt and pepper shaker. So if if you saw on the news that, hey, um, this salt company said that we found some lead in some of our salt and we want to make sure that you empty that out and get some clean salt. And then you went to your salt shaker and you looked at it and you see there that there's a few specks, and you said, I'll be damned. There's some in mine. Would you just say, no, nah, it's OK. A little bit of lead's not bad. I'm going to go ahead and use that salt. Or would you get clean salt? And I think that way of seeing that visually, people would say, "Well, of course, I would get some clean salt." I'm I'm oversimplifying it, but it's a way to point out that yes, I too, as a as a hunter and angler, as a kid, I used to go around and collect. I'm dating myself now because I'd go to the gas stations and collect uh, tire weights. And I'd collect them in a milk crate with a cardboard box. That cardboard box was black because of the lead that I collected. Then I would go smelt it and, and melt it down. I would pour it into jig molds. So I'm, I'm now atomizing it with a, a, a cooker and in, in this little shop with no ventilation. And then we would pour the jig molds. And then I'd put them on a belt sander, and my hands would be black. And then I'd paint them. And after I painted them, I'd put them in the oven. And my mother hated it because she could smell that paint in the in the house, to fume up the it's whole probably house. Probably lead paint too. Yeah, probably.
0: <laughs> 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 Just one question for
2: you. What's it's that? all starting
0: to make sense now, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it is.
2: Yeah. No, but the point yeah. is, even though I can say that I'm not, you know, sitting here drooling, and I made it through schooling and have degrees and all of that stuff. I'm not saying that any of that lead uh, affected me, but what I can guarantee you, I I found out and I figured out that I wasn't going to expose my kids to any of it, whether it affected me or it could affect them or not. It's just my knowledge of lead is not good for vertebrate species of which we are one. And therefore, I'm going to take every precaution to make sure that I'm not eating it or feeding it to my kids that doesn't mean that they're gonna, you know, they, we have genetics. We know about uh, the the breeding that and and the the problems that um, my line of ancestors led to me. So I didn't have a lot to start with to begin with. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so this this kind of brings me to to kind of the next point because I, I think people are are going you know to want a bit of information on this. It's sort of like okay so i'm gonna you know be looking at you know the various um options that are out there for non-lead ammunition um and I, I we gotta keep like shotguns in the you know the discussion too i mean everybody i mean it's so well you know ingrained in us now steel shot for waterfowl it's got you know it says right on the box it doesn't seem to be an issue uh anymore it's just a normal thing that we all do um but but you know center fire cartridges are going to be you know like switching over to to that uh non-lead ammunition is going to be new there's going to be questions about that there's going to be myths um, people are going to heard stuff what, what what are the common things that you hear when when you get down to this like okay i have a 270 shoot 150 grain partition and now i'm going to be moving um, uh, making a choice for non lead ammunition. Like what, what do you guys hear? Like commonly what's questions, responses, resistance, and, and the advice, like what advice do you give to somebody that said, okay, this is some things that you should look at if you're making the transition.
0: So I'm going to start with advice first. Um, cause I think it makes more sense if you're really looking at making the transition. And you've got something in your rifle that shoots well right now. So your 270 150 grain partition really well. The first thing I would do is look at you're shooting a partition, you're shooting a nozzler bullet. I look at nozler's non lead option, and it's going to be 130 grain 270 bullet. Weight retention is going to be in that 98 99 percent usually, so you're not really losing any penetration with having that lighter weight bullet you'll be able to drive it a little faster it'll be a little flatter Um, the length will be a little longer um, for the same weight bullet because density differences between the materials so moving to that lighter weight bullet actually helps it stabilize in the twist rates makes it more accurate potentially and all of this is dependent on your firearm the type of ammunition, the powder they use, the seating depth, all of these variables. So imagine you've got something, you try the same manufacturer and a lighter weight non lead bullet, it doesn't work. That doesn't mean that non-lit bullets don't work. What it means is that that bullet in your firearm doesn't match up quite right. So same as if you just bought a new rifle and you were testing to figure out which type of ammunition shot the best, you would try something different so you you switch over to one of the other non lead options and ge- as a general rule we say to go a step or two down in bullet weight because of those density differences to get the stabilization kind of if you imagine the bullet as a football the twist rates how fast you spin it you have to match up how fast you spin it with the length of the bullet in a rifle, you can't change how fast you spin it, but you can change the length of the football to match up to that spin. And that's what we're doing when we're choosing bullet weights. It's just that for a long time, the only material has been lead, so we had some consistency. Now we're using a different material, copper, less density, so the weights change how that length of bullet matches up.
1: Okay. And I think this, some of the information I was reading on this, the advice is... is... Like, if you'd be looking for like a 15 to 20 percent like drop in bullet weight, so so a 270 with 150 grain, I might be transitioning to like the 130 grain, yeah. One 270,
0: 130 is basically your your option, so is
1: it, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You're, okay. you're getting for 270, I shoot 130 grain Barnes tip triple shock, it shoots well on my rifle, it's mo sub moa, it's good to go. The other options from all the other manufacturers are either 130 or i think barnes makes a 129 grain and then there's some small companies that make reloading components that maybe have a little bit more variation but they're still within five grains or so i think of that 130. Um, and that that's based around the twist rates that are common in 270s to match up to that spin um, if you start looking yeah Sorry, I get, I get down the track, so you just got to interrupt.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, no I, didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I know what your listeners and, and along the lines of advice and what their responses will be because we've seen them so often. And Leland and I did a shoot up in Montana, and we were shooting a 6.5 Creedmoor because everybody's got one and there's an excuse to go buy another gun. And <laughs> so I did, and um, we were shooting uh, 120 grain, I think. And uh, the gentleman said, well, I shoot a 140 grain, and I need all of that 140 grains in my lead bullet, and I don't want to drop in weight. And so we <laughs> demonstrated by shooting each of these bullets, the 120. Actually, was it the 120 or 127? I, I can't remember, but it was... It, I, I think it was
0: 127, I believe. Yeah,
2: 127. So we had 127 grain 6.5 Creedmoor and 140 grain lead and the 127 grain non-lead. We shot them both into a barrel each. So one bullet went into uh, a water system that we use. We used to just shoot uh, water jugs inside of a 55 gallon drum to capture everything. But now we have a trough that that we shoot into. Anyway, we shot the non-lead 127 grain bullet and the lead 140 grain bullet into the same medium, the same water um, trap. We walked down range to recover the remainder of each bullet. And as we pulled them out, The non-lead bullet retained nearly 100% of its mass, and the lead-based bullet, the 140 grain, lost quite a bit of of its mass. And when we pulled them out, the non-lead was bigger in appearance, and yet it was 127 grains to start. And the gentleman who said he didn't want to compromise and wanted to shoot the bigger bullet— He pointed to the non-lead bullet and said, see, I want that kind of retention. And Leland and I looked at each other and said, exactly, that's why you want the lighter non-lead bullet, because it didn't break down. And it retained a greater proportion of its original mass, plus it retained a higher weight than the lead bullet, because the lead bullet stripped and lost in the form of fragments. And that's why, and he goes... Well, no, no, no. Wait a second. Let me see that. (laughs) Anyway, so, so, um, you know, of course you're not going to go to the extremes that we have in testing bullets and buying ballistics gel and all of that. Um, but it is easy enough to go shoot your lead and non-lead side by side, put them on paper, just like you would if you switch from manufacturers of the same lead weighted bullet, you know, that some say my bullet, I mean, my gun only shoots Winchester or my gun only shoots Remington or my gun only shoots this. Well, Those variabilities are there. So you have to put them on paper and you have to know your tools and you have to know that they're going to do what you expect them to when you pull that trigger at 100, 200, 300 and and on in range. Um, But once you get that bullet dialed in and you know you can put it on the mark, then go shoot them into uh, water jugs. Collect the remainder of the two bullets. See for yourself. This is not magic. Um, we've just come to it because we test as many as we can to help take some of that guesswork out for people. And we're hoping in the future to create on our website um, a bunch of testimonials so people can say, hey, I've got a Model 700 uh, BDL Remington uh, long action, and it shot this lead bullet really well. And I found that this bullet in non-lead worked well to hopefully help to navigate that process, um, and really, it, it's much better if there are testimonials from other hunters than just us, because again, people are skeptical that we're we have an agenda, so we might be skewing the data. So um, uh, the positive
1: for restaurants and all, you know, the five stars and yeah. Amazon yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah,
2: yeah there you Hun- go. Hunters so, helping hunters. Yeah, exactly. And if if we get back out on the road again. Um, give us a shout. Our contact information is on our website at nonledpartnership.org. You can get a hold of Leland or I. Just call us on our cell phone. If you email, you may not get a response for a while because we're, we're pretty slow in that. Well, I am anyway. Um, but give us a call. And once we get back out on the road, man, if we can get a sports group, like a, a club, a shooting club, um, agencies are inviting us out, wildlife management agencies. If we can come to your neck of the woods, we will bring the ammo. And in some cases, we can even bring enough ammo that people can try it in their own guns. Um, we're hoping to develop programs like that and have regional representatives all over North America so that they can go to one of these, these demos and, and eliminate some of that, uh, that testing.
1: Interesting. That is super cool. Like, yeah. yeah, definitely. I could see that being of interest to people. Now talk a little bit about um, the way a copper bullet performs. Uh, we talked like there's the mushroom versus the flowering, like, cause they, they look a little bit different, but there's this myth out there that the copper bullet is, is Like it's not as lethal because it's just it's making that pencil hole through the animal. It's not causing that that um, shock and hemorrhaging, you know, around the blood and and leading to the blood loss, like like you were saying. So there's there's some discussion about shot placement, Um, you know, like it's um, there's that. And then also how that bullet actually performs because it is different. Right.
2: Take it away, Brown. You're going to get another 30 minutes now. <laughs> oh,
0: man, that's, that's the hole to climb into. Uh, so, the, I mean, the reality is that the way they're designed to work is actually pretty much the same. I mean, the end result of an expanded large frontal area creating a, a, a shock wave in the tissue that creates tearing is exactly the same. The difference is basically in how they get to that large frontal area. So a lead core bullet uses kind of the soft malleability of lead to be smashed down and deformed into that mushroom shape. Um, and that's part of the reason why lead's been so valuable, is because it's soft enough to respond to those pressures in that way and can be controlled by the copper jacket to a certain extent. Um, so either way, you get kind of the shank of the bullet in the back with a large flattish front in the front of the bullet pushing its way through tissue creating a pressure wave that tears tissue in a larger area than just the size of the bullet, because it's moving fast enough to create a wave through the liquid that's in our tissues or in an animal's tissues. Same thing with a copper bullet, except for it uses hydraulic pressure in a cavity of that bullet to create enough pressure to split that open to create that large layer. It happens extraordinarily quickly Um, In all the testing we've done, the expansion rates are almost exactly the same between a lead core and a non-lead bullet um, at similar velocities. And there's been some good testing out of Europe that's actually looked at expansion across different velocities that equate to different ranges and seen very similar um, damage coming out of that, both in ballistic media um, and also in animals in field testing. Um, but either way, what they're doing is they're creating a flat front area that increases the damage because it forces tissue to the side. Now, the, one of the arguments people will have is, oh, well, I want my bullet to expend all its energy and stop inside the animal. And that means it's going to do as much damage as possible. But if you actually look at wound channels and how those wound channels are created, that kind of stops to make sense a little bit. Because as a bullet slows down, it's not creating as much of a pressure weight. So if you're losing weight from the front of the bullet and it's tearing away the edges of that large frontal area and as it and, and by doing all of those things, it slows down, it's actually creating a slightly smaller width to the wound channel because no, it no longer has the velocity to create that pressure weight. So when people say, oh, well, a non-lead bullet holds its weight and it holds its momentum and punches right through, and exits, and it's wasting energy because it exits, I don't really believe that that's true. Because if you look at the width of the wound channels, particularly at the tail end, you see that that velocity that's maintained by maintaining the mass of the bullet, the weight of the bullet, and the momentum, which creates that pressure wave deep in, actually results in a slightly wider wound channel deeper in the animal. And that's just not just my observations. It's actually borne out in some of the research that's available one of the things i have to be really careful about though is that there isn't much research about hunting ammunition and terminal performance um, we've kind of gone off of manufacturers development technology and just kind of what has the public we've been willing to accept um, there's very little science out there around hunting ammunition and terminal performance and what's most effective across there. It's only recently, in the last 10 or 15 years, that I've really been able to find decent research being done. And a lot of that's based around non-lead ammunition because people have these questions. Does it actually work as well? Um, And all the evidence I've seen so far is that, yes, it absolutely does. Now, to be fair, every bullet is designed with an envelope of performance. So it will expand down to a certain velocity and then it's just not going fast enough to drive expansion anymore. And so it becomes basically a full metal jacket. And you see that right. bonded style of bullets and non-lead bullets, which perform very, very similarly in tissue, as far as damage, perform very similarly as far as what their envelope of performance is. They claim about 1800 feet per second, generally for expansion um to start expansion that doesn't mean full expansion Um, but the one benefit that non-lead bullets have is they don't seem to have a maximum so you can shoot something at the muzzle and still get at least some level of good performance out of it because it's not going to completely come apart on you whereas some lead cord bullets up close especially you start getting into kind of a softer cup and core the the bullets that people say oh this works at long range great but you know I could get closer to an animal it's an awful lot harder for me to get further away from an animal to make sure that my bullet's working the way it's supposed to
2: um, and we'll have people tell us you know that I tried it and I shot that deer through and through in the bread basket and punched clean through the lungs and it didn't even hurt it and it ran off I was like well <laughs> I know being a hunter myself that if I miss a shot I want to blame something other than me <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, and it, and it is, I mean, if you start changing a bunch of variables and, and your results are different, it's damn hard to figure out which change it was. And that's why we're slow to change once we know something works. So, um, and, and I like another one too, and I don't know if you said it Leland, but um, a, a lot of people are talking about the decreased um, waste in meat or meat damage, you know, from having a big um, bloodshot area. Where some bullets, and I saw this, and and I know people are gonna date me and and ridicule me for saying this, but I had a good buddy who shot a 300 Savage, and uh, he shot one of the old you know standby bullets, and he shot this elk, and a couple of times it didn't even penetrate. Through the uh, scapula and the and the humerus, it broke apart before it penetrated the organs. Well, with a non-lead bullet, rarely will you get that. Like Leland said, as long as you have those velocities of 1,800 feet per second, so you know out to 300 yards, you're usually going to have a pass through if it's a perpendicular quartering shot through the lungs. It will pass through, and I have come to really appreciate having that clean pass through with less meat damage. Um, and conversely, if you're shooting at an animal and say it's a first-time hunter, and this is Leland's example, I'm stealing it from him because it's a great one. If you're dealing with first-time hunters like kids, you know, and you're hunting, let's say you're hunting feral hogs. Well, feral hogs are hard to, to knock, down, hard to put down, but a solid copper bullet that's going to retain its mass, it will punch through the femur and through the vital organs and maybe lodge in the other side, but oftentimes it'll go clean through. Um, So if you want to break an animal down, i.e., you know, tear tear a shoulder down so that animal is is debilitated, um, that's a good use for these solid copper bullets because they will blow through and penetrate the cavity after hitting something like a broadside of a humerus of a front leg.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting because people will say, oh, well, you can't have less meat damage and effective damage at the same time. Um, But that depends to a certain extent on the tissue. Um, So if you think about... Uh, kind of the fragility of lung tissue versus kind of the, the denseness of muscle tissue It explains a little bit of why you can have less meat damage and substantial um or, or more than adequate lung damage to actually kill an animal um and you kind of do you can get best of both worlds yeah and like chris was saying you get that new hunter start breaking skeletal structure i mean i've shot a lot of hogs um I've tracked two that are shot with a non-lead bullet, and both of those were 99% my fault. Um could I potentially gotten lucky if a fragment had come off of a lead bullet? Maybe. But if I'm relying on luck because that fragment's gonna go somewhere and make up for my mistake, then I just made a mistake. That's all there is to it. I mean, there's nothing else to say about that. And, you know, you can't rely on your bullet coming apart in an unspecified manner to somehow solve a problem of it, putting it in the wrong spot. That's just solvers
1: yeah. do to it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Shot placement. Shot placement. Yeah no, yeah, no matter what. I mean, you get into the whole thing, you know, people go down the rabbit holes of like the Magnum calibers and the big heavy green bullets and knockdown power and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I always come back to it and it's like, Man, like we kill these big animals with an arrow. Um and it and it's all about precision of perfect shot placement, broadside through the lungs, and it's like they're gonna die.
0: I mean, I gotta go back to that elk story told at the very beginning, right? I mean, that's a hundred and thirty grain two seventy bullet at just under three hundred yards that went through and through and broke ribs coming out. I mean, that's in my opinion perfect bullet performance. And yeah, Yeah. I shot the animal more than once, but I probably would have done that with any other bullet too, because that's my responsibility. If It's on its feet. Keep shooting. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'm I'm a new archery hunter. I shot that javelina. Well, I shot at it. I'm going to tell on myself. I shot at it four times and you know what the sad thing was? My first shot was through and through the shoulder and through the top of the lungs. I didn't need to shoot again, but I'm not as experienced in archery hunting. And when it when it started to move away from me and get beyond 60 yards, I wanted to close the distance and make sure that that animal was going to die. And so I shot it again and I hit it again and I missed another time. Um, but now that I see the shot placement and after I skinned the animal and my daughter was with me, and I said, there you go, perfect example. <laughs> I'm new to this, I, I, I got excited and I shot more than I needed to, but if I would have had the confidence in that first shot being on target, and it was, that animal was dead. It was just needing to go its 40 yards and expire, and it traveled about 40 yards, and it was a through-and-through yep. through shot, and very clean, had I not hit it a second time. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> now, now, just kind of the final thing, kind of on on you know bullets and stuff with uh, non-lead. So what about you know the myths of the copper bullets are wearing out barrels quicker they cause more fouling um you know that that i've i've seen that float around to kind of the naysayers what's the reality that you guys i know think of?
0: the fouling is a remnant of, of the early development of the technology and when they first developed the Barnes bullets they they didn't have any banding it was just a cylinder um and there was no place for to dipl- displaced material to go um Because copper is a little bit different than lead, you don't get the obturation or kind of the slugging um, or absorption of variation in in the rifle barrel that you get with tooling marks. And so you would get a little bit additional stripping of material off the bullet from the rifling, And so occasionally you did see rifles that had a fair amount of fouling. Once they started to have the addition of these uh, kind of banding grooves in the bullets that seems to be kind of standard for all the different types now, Um, There's a little bit of variation depending on what company you're looking at. Um, Those really seem to have solved all the issues with fouling that I've seen. As far as wearing out barrels, um, we jacket lead cord bullets in copper too. Um, So it's the same material that's impacting the steel, it's still softer than steel. Um, So, one, that doesn't really make much sense to me just from a material standpoint too we've never seen any real evidence that we're wearing barrels out faster um using a copper bullet versus a leg core bullet um, none that i've been able to find anywhere and there have actually been some gun writers that have done a little bit of like testing and cut open barrels to look and see if there was some excessive um wear happening They they didn't document any so interesting I've been using and the a- same rifle for 10 plus years shooting just about every type. And I probably shoot more than a lot of Not more than a competition shooter, but more than your average hunter. Um, it still shoots fine as long as, you know, I don't screw it up by putting a new stock on it and not getting it you know, torqued down properly. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> there's there's a story there. I, I can sense, but, oh, but I mean, if you do, if you do switch, you know, when, less when you switch to non lead ammunition and you think you wear the barrel on your firearm, then you get to buy a new one. And like, you're going to keep the old one, of course, and still shoot it once in a while. But
0: yeah. I mean, the you, other thing is just clean properly. Because a lot of people just haven't well a long time.
2: If an average North American uh, big game hunter um, wears their gun out, in in a you know relatively short period of time from from uh whatever they think the reason is and they need to get rid of it they can just donate it to us and we'll use it
1: yeah i'm just yeah
2: yeah we'll, we'll,
1: uh, we'll get the shipping addresses up for all yeah, those. yeah
2: by the way i have to take this opportunity leland to tell you that that model 700 so i did an experiment and it wasn't a, again not a terribly scientific experiment but in the beginning when we had those bullets that didn't have the bands cut into them to decrease pressures and all of that um, I had heard a lot about fouling and this one guy, a good friend of mine, he said, look, I had to buy a, a uh, this this device to to um, remove the copper plating. And he bought this rod that goes in the barrel and it's in a solution and all of that. And I was like, wow, really? I haven't had a problem with my old mountain rifle 270, which is probably 30 years old. And I'd started shooting copper and it seemed to be okay. So I did an experiment. I went to our local Walmart. And I bought a Remington model 700 ADL 30-06. And I shot that thing for a year and a half at shooting demonstrations. And I did not clean it because I wanted to see what the true effect was. I still have the gun and Leland and I experienced and he gave me tons of hell over this at a shooting demo in Indiana, I think it was. And all of a sudden my gun, I just couldn't hit the broadside of a barn and I didn't know what had happened. I took the um, mounts off um, when I came home and because we went back in the Midwest where they had humidity something I'm not familiar with being in here in Arizona they had I had rust was developing under the mount under the bases and It had moved it that way. So I cleaned it all and I didn't know anything about lapping a, 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 a Set of rings and so I bought that and i lapped the rings. I cleaned everything. I remounted the plate the base plate put it all back together and I shot it again the other day, Leland, and it was still shooting off. And I thought, oh no, this thing has finally fouled. (laughs) It turns out I, I cleaned it again really good, went through the whole process again. I took the scope off, I took the rings off, I took the base off, no rust. Then I took the stock off and I found that, you know how wood will degrade over time and the hardness of the grain will raise up and the rest will retract? That was pushing on the barrel. So I floated the barrel. So the humidity from our trip back to the Midwest, I think it affected not only it rusted underneath the base plate, it also caused the wood to swell. And over time, it started pushing on the barrel. So now I've now, um, what's the, it's called floating the barrel, right? This is all new to me. I, I just buy guns and if they kill things, I put it in the freezer. Um, <laughs> but I, I now have floated that barrel and I'm going to go shoot it again. And if, if that's not the problem, I'll have to report back to you guys and tell you whether or not that barrel was finally shot out. But, um, I'm, I'm thinking probably I found the problem.
1: <laughs> oh, well. Man, you can tell these guys know their stuff inside and out, uh, both scientifically and just being out there doing stuff and playing. And, uh, that's, that's fantastic. Hey, um, if, if you want to wrap this up for listeners, what's your final advice when it comes to non-lead ammunition and the choices that are available, the choices that somebody can make, you know, to switch? What, What's the big message? Piece of advice?
2: I think um, I think the biggest thing is you know we're we're inundated with information, and a lot of that information they're they're agenda driven. You know they're either trying to sell a product or to convince somebody not to buy a product. Or uh, there, there, there's tons of information out there, and it's not all legitimate. Take this information in, think about it, apply it to yourself, do some experimentation yourself, and then share the results of it. And from what we've seen, when people try non-lead ammunition, they come back to us the next time we see them, and you would think we gave them their first gun. They're like, oh my God, this stuff works fantastic, and it's just like you said— So we're seeing positive results and we're not brainwashing people. We're giving them information so that they can make a more informed decision. And beyond that, share that information honestly with your fellow hunters and especially with your friends and folks that are not hunters because they need to see our responsibility in action. That we are not just a bunch of, you know, hillbillies and rednecks out there shooting up the countryside and don't care about conservation. They need to know that we are taking all of this in and we're making responsible decisions for the betterment of wildlife and the ecosystems that we all share.
1: Awesome message.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't want to follow that
0: up now. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. No, I mean, it's just like Chris said, right? It's about taking advantage of the tools and technologies we have. I mean, the internet's a great resource. There's some fantastic information out there. Um, You know, read read everything with a critical mind. I mean, we we don't expect people to believe us right off the bat or, or just buy into whatever we have to say. If you've got questions ask us the question you've got if we don't know the answer we'll tell you we don't know and we'll try to figure it out um, but that's what this is about it's about all of us kind of growing together figuring out the path forward in a way that protects wildlife and protects hunting and yeah. if we if we do both then both are going to be stronger for it so that, that's really all we've got is making sure that you know we're doing it as a team and as a community.
1: Yep, absolutely. That comes full circle to what we we're what we we're talking about at the very beginning of, you know, why why you guys created uh, the partnership. So that that's a good good way to close it off. Um, hey guys, fantastic conversation, man. So much to take in, so much new information, opening my eyes uh hopefully listeners eyes on on a lot on a lot of things um it's this is cool subject it's like there's science uh there's conservation and philosophy kind of mixed in you know with this as well like you know when we start getting into like you know morally you know our responsibilities and i i love That analogy you had, Leland, uh, in the middle of the podcast about taking responsibility for that bullet when it leaves the end of your gun and and how you expanded what that means to you and not just like what it might hit or where it might go, but the full 130 grains or whatever of that that object you're taking full responsibility of that and and where the future of where all of that might go through the food chain and that that was that really that that was a huge huge thing for me i I like that i hope hope listeners pick up on that one that that's that was pretty impactful cool appreciate it
0: yeah that was a great Uh, episode guys thanks
1: so just want to let folks know um started these discussions with these fellows back uh last November um but the Hunter Conservationist podcast um is looking at, um, if the guys will have us, um, to become like a supporting partner for the North American non-led partnership to use this podcast, um, our writing, our social media, our speaking, everything that we have available, um, to help, um, educate and disseminate outreach information, science, what these fellows learn and what they want to pass, have us pass on to you. Um, we want to be part of that and we want to help um add to um the little bit of momentum that started with non online partnership in canada um and kind of pick up and and continue to uh, move that narrative forward um in you know in canada hunter-owned voluntary measures um it's a responsible you know a uh, thing for hunters to do and to share with the non-hunting public so uh we're looking forward to being part of that if you want us to to help out on this, this side of the border and and continue to keep this dialogue going. And so part of that, we want to let listeners know that, um, you know, this this podcast might have like generated a lot of questions, you know, for you and, you know, you might not know what to do a- after this podcast um reach out to us as well here at the podcast um you know hcmedia at hcmedia@thehunterconservationist.com or you know go on to the web at thehunterconservationist.com fill out uh, the form and send us a message send us your questions as well we'll try to help um we're connected with these guys as well um we'll put their website thenonletpartnership.org uh in the show notes um you can you can reach both uh, Christian Leland, you know, as well. But if you want to reach out to us and say, hey, I got some questions, I, you know, um, want some help, I'm trying to choose a new firearm, you know, those sorts of things or questions about, you know, bullets and uh, non lead ammunition, all this sort of thing. Uh, we want to help uh, help you, the listeners, in making some of these uh, informed decisions that that the guys were talking about. Um, you know, I, none of this, I think, is meant to like guilt people into like making the switch uh i think it's very clear that that's your philosophy at the partnership and i feel this as well that in the hunting community this is a process of us learning together we didn't know about a lot of this stuff 10 years ago or 20 years ago or five years ago but we are learning it now and science is really helping us learn at a high level of, of confidence and, and we're incorporating science into our hunting practices. That's a foundation of the North American model of wildlife conservation. So, you know, that, that's, that's real. It's a real thing. It's not just tenants on, on a paper that this is it in action. Um, learning together, using the science and adapting as, as we go. And there's nothing, to be guilty about. There's nothing to be ashamed about. A hunted with lead bullets my whole entire life. My dad did. My grandfather did. Everybody. It's it. it's fine. Like it's you know, we are where we are. But what matters is how we how we change our behavior and what we do with the information that these guys are bringing forward and making those choices. And I thank you. I thank you for everything that you are doing and the information that, that you do want to put out there. So, um, absolutely
0: our pleasure. Fantastic. Thank you for having us and, and look forward to more conversation in the future. for
1: Sure. So the thing we didn't get to talk about, um, you know, a little bit, we, we were doing this a bit by email is, uh, uh, non-lead options for Turkey shotgun shells. Cause I'm already thinking about Turkey season coming up. So, um, what I'm hoping is, uh, when the whole border thing and the COVID thing opens up, uh, we'll have an opportunity to get together and, uh, maybe we'll do some testing with, um, with Turkey loads. And look at the tungsten and, and bismuth and different options that are available out there because they do exist. Um, I'll, I'll try to get some information out before turkey season for folks uh, on on uh, non-lead options for turkey hunting. And but I think it would be more fun to get together with you guys with some shotguns and shoot some ballistic gels and water jugs and those sorts of things. And and uh, and then tell people about it. So I'm looking forward to that day.
0: Yeah sounds like fun to me let's let's
1: make it happen let's do it all right we just got to get this COVID thing (laughs) taken care of so um thanks very much uh for joining us tonight from Oregon and from New Mexico good uh, luck with your field work there Chris finishing up and all right everybody thanks for listening and we will see you in the next episode